Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Hello again. Before the summer ends, uh, we bring to you the last recording uh, of the last months from one of the Visegrad breakfasts. We hosted Anthony L. Gardner, a former ambassador of the United States to the European Union, who recently published the book Stars with Stripes. Uh, in the book, he evaluates the relationship between Europe and the United States, putting forward some uh, more ambitious uh, ideas about the state of transatlantic relations and paving a way for hopefully a brighter future in this cooperation. In the meeting, you will also hear comments by Marcin Zaborowski, senior associate at Visegrad Insight and editor-in-chief of Respublica Nova, our flagship publication at Respublica Foundation. Marcin was one of the reviewers and first commentators about the book, uh, but now let us uh, hear what Anthony Gardner has to say about the future of this relationship. I will try to, to keep this brief. You know, we're living in a COVID world, so let me start with the pandemic, which I didn't expect that, you know, would be this big a topic. But um, <clears throat> I remember um, back to the time I was working in the White House, I was a young staffer in the National Security Council, 1994-95, under Bill Clinton. And uh, I played a role, contributed to a document now mostly forgotten called the New Transatlantic Agenda. And I went back to that document and I saw that we had actually spent a fair amount of time talking about what the US and the EU should be doing in terms of preventing identifying preventing uh, pandemics and you're right the focus was on AIDS and Ebola is those were the two things and the document said and I'm quoting we're committed to develop and implement an effective global early warning system and response network for new and re-emerging communicable diseases And it went on to have more stuff about how we should have a US-EU task force and work more closely to WHO. How much did we do? Well, almost nothing, basically. This is basically almost forgotten. That's 25 years ago. And fast forward to 19, uh, sorry, 2014, I was at post, there was an outbreak of Ebola in Western, West Africa. And I talk about this in my book, Uh, the chapter on foreign aid humanitarian assistance. The U.S. and the EU did act uh, effectively, albeit belatedly, in responding to that outbreak. Um, it was mostly contained to the region, although there were a few cases actually of Ebola being contracted outside, including Europe and the United States. And I describe how we acted there together. And I say uh, us, not, not just the European member states, but also the EU institutions, of which there were many involved. Development cooperation, obviously ECHO, the humanitarian aid arm of, of the commission, but also justice and home affairs, because a big issue was, you know, um, how the states were going to coordinate entry into the EU, especially for Medivac, for evacuating sick patients back to, to Europe. And, and the commission played an important role as a coordinator uh, in many instances. Um, I say all of this because we've seen very little Um, you know, transatlantic cooperation in this crisis, uh, I think mostly because Donald Trump really doesn't think that cooperation is necessary um, and has a very, very low regard for the European Union, which I also talk about in the book. And that's where I'll start. Um, and this may sound partisan, but the point I really want to make here is that this president has departed from 60 years of bipartisan foreign policy with regard to uh, Europe, particularly European integration. So I follow in the footsteps of 
Democratic and Republican ambassadors to the EU, all of whom uh, were in favor of promoting European integration with its ups and downs, to be fair, but um, doing so because uh, all of those administrations understood that having a strong Europe, a united Europe, an integrated Europe would uh, be uh, better than the opposite and would work more effectively with the United States on a whole host of regional and global challenges. That's what the book is about. Now, all of that's easy to say, but the book tries to give some real concrete examples of how the U.S. and the EU uh, did stuff together that matters. So a bulk of the, the book is economics, indeed. So uh, it's trade, it's data privacy, it's the digital economy, but not just trade, not just economy. It's also security with all of its facets. So it's military and security cooperation, which is perhaps not the most important aspect of the US-EU relationship, but significant. There's energy security, significant and growing in significance. And even this administration, I would argue, has been more or less um, continuing in the same line. Um, then there is law enforcement cooperation, again, highly significant, not just with the member states, but also with the EU, particularly Europol. Again, this administration is more or less uh, understood how important that is in continuing in the same uh, line. Sanctions, I spent a fair amount of time on sanctions. I lived through sanctions, um, particularly how we, the US, EU, member states, uh, announced, implemented, rolled over, uh, biting sanctions uh, against Russia after its annexation of uh, Eastern U of uh, Ukraine, Crimea. Um, and that was no mean feat. You know, I think it's an under, uh, undersung achievement, uh, arguably, and I argue in my book, we should have done more and earlier, but okay, you know, that, that, that's life. Uh, and it's true that the downing of the Malaysian aircraft was the pivotal moment that really stiffened the spines of certain member states in the EU. But, 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 we actually did an important thing together, and I argue that the sanctions on Iran uh, were similar. The basic thesis is that the United States, without cooperating with its European allies and the EU, could not have implemented an effective sanctions regime against Russia or Iran. And then I turn to the third uh, section of the book, which is saving the planet, as I call it, um, climate change. And I tell the story of the Paris Accords, but even, and this is unusual in the book, I go back all the way to the 70s. And the reason I do that is to describe how unusual it was that during these eight years of Obama, we actually were aligned, more or less aligned with the EU on what needed to be done. And we got to a successful outcome, um, thanks also to the French you know, diplomatic uh, corps. Um, and that was unusual because in the 70s, actually, the United States was more, um, you know, more active on environmental protection, interestingly, uh, before, of course, Europe and the EU specifically took uh, the sponsorship leading role on a lot of issues. And uh, the United States basically withdrew uh, for several decades um, and withdrew from Kyoto. And, you know, we know the history. So uh, we're back to a situation where the United States is totally withdrawn. Um, but the argument, again, is if have to again work together. And the final chapter is on foreign aid for the obvious reason that we're the biggest funders. Uh, and we need to work together, particularly in an age where budgets are tight and going to get tighter. Uh, and particularly 
as this virus starts really hitting the developing world. And we absolutely are going to have to work closely to ensure <clears throat> that uh, we do things such as, um, you know, uh, de dealing with the, the debt, uh, debt crisis in the developing world and providing medical and technical assistance uh, and, and doing all of those things together. And I'll end by saying the thesis of the book, probably for this audience, is, is uh, blindingly uh, obvious. Um, the thesis is that there is no alternative uh, to strong, uh, not only translate cooperation, but US-EU cooperation with all of its faults. And believe me, I saw a lot of them. I suffered through some of them. The EU has a lot of faults as an organization, but I'm a believer in the sense it has unique assets to bring to bear. And usually we're aligned, uh, at least we used to be aligned, uh, and we need to rediscover this, um, this tradition of working together. And that will include, by the way, on reforming the world trading system. Uh, if I had to identify one area which I, I find particularly crazy, and I use that word, advise it crazy, is that this administration does not understand that in order to really deal with China and reform the world trading system, we should be working with the EU as a major trading power. And it is a trading superpower. And it's a regulatory superpower. Why it is that we're not engaging with the EU as our obvious best partner on this, to me, is, is baffling. Now, if there is a change of administration in November, I think you know, this message will fall on fertile ground. Right now, uh, it has not. Uh, and the reason it has not, as many of you know, uh, is that the EU represents many things that this administration detests. Uh, multilateralism, rules-based order, um, you know, and, and so on. Um, and the view is in this administration, we can get a lot more in the short term by dealing bilaterally, transactionally in a relationship of force with countries around the world, including our best allies. And that means often acting unilaterally. I think that's short-sighted. The acid test for every country and for every diplomat, Matthew knows this better than anybody else, is, you know, um, we have to represent the interests of our country and get the best deal we can. Uh, but I think it's, it's absolutely um, incorrect to say that this president is promoting U.S. interests. I think he's damaging U.S. interests in a, in a profound way, uh, potentially even over the medium and long term. So, th you know, that's the book. Um, and, uh, so thank you for all, for all for dialing in. Thanks. Uh, th th thank you very much uh, for this uh, account. There, there is much more in the book. It, it is full, uh, not only of, of this general account, there, there are of course personal stories, quotes, uh, excellent photos, cartoons also of yourself. Uh, and, and there are also some historical quotes. I was particularly struck that uh, you're referring so often, you're coming back in, in, with your reflection back to Hans Morgenthau uh, defining uh, uh, the, the new post-war post order in, uh, in 44. Then you even quote Benjamin Franklin, I think, when you are actually referring to, to uh, the partnership between the US and the EU. Uh, meaning that uh, if, if not everyone is in line in a way that everybody will be hanging on the line. That, that, I, I don't quote it specifically, but it's one of these famous 
historical quotes. Now, um, over to Marcin Zaborowski. Um, Marcin, I'll unmute you now. Um, Editor-in-Chief of Respublika Nova at our foundation and formerly director of Warsaw Office uh, for SIPA and former director of the Polish Institute of International Affairs with his first comments. Then we'll go, um, after a response from Anthony Garner, we'll go off the record and uh, I'm already waiting for your quotes, uh, well, sorry, what your comments and questions in the chat or, or by any, anyhow uh, indicating for me that you want to take floor. Uh, so Marcin. Okay, well, uh, thank you Wojtek and thank you Ambassador for the excellent book. Uh, it should be a, a compulsory reading for students of uh, transatlantic relations, that's for sure. Um, one of the things which I find particularly interesting about the book is the, the, the real breadth and scope of the agenda that you were dealing with. I mean, traditionally, uh, at the time where I used to commute a lot to Brussels, the uh, US ambassador to the EU would have his or her, well, usually it was his, his agenda really confined to the issues of uh, you know, economic cooperation. Uh, trade relations, uh, but it's very clear from your book that the agenda has expanded to the questions of security and and and, and political relations. Um, and that I um, maybe I was missing something, but I, I I think in the past it wasn't like that. Maybe it just kind of also shows to the evolution of the European Union as a more of a you know geopolitical actor after all, because um, considerable part of the book is about you know, the, the data protection, uh, data privacy, the, uh, the, the green economy, the Brexit, uh, but also the, you know, the issue of sanctions that you were mentioning yourself, uh, sanctions and, you know, the Russian invasion of Crimea and the reaction which, which was being needed. You know, on one hand, obviously, you have NATO and, uh, you know, the, uh, your colleague uh, dealing with NATO potential response to that. But frankly, the, the military instruments at this point in time were very limited. Uh, whereas, you know, the instruments like, uh, like sanctions were far more powerful. So it just also kind of shows us that the, the world in which we live can, can, uh, uh, can make a better use out of the instruments which are not military in nature. Um, and uh, so that was one of the interesting points that I uh, drew from your book. Um, now, from uh, as a Central European, uh, I mean, one of the things which I also find interesting is the attention that you have given to the issue of data privacy. I mean, you even you started the book actually saying that you expected that issue to blow out the relationship and to make your your job like super difficult. And, in a, you know, ironically, you were sort of, you know, saying that, oh, no, thank God for the Russian invasion of Crimea because it diverted some attention away from, uh, from the, the, the crisis, yeah? Uh, from, uh, I mean, I you were obviously joking, uh, but um, the issue here at hand is that that crisis, the privacy data crisis, didn't receive, uh, you know, such an attention in Central Europe, as it did in Germany, for example. Germany, of course, I mean, uh, there was, there was the, uh, the, the big issue there. And as you remarked, you know, uh, the, the press was uh, united in the criticism of the United States and the praise of, of Snowden. 
on that uh, on on that uh, on that particular issue. Here, you know, uh, the, the issue wasn't particularly noticed at all. I mean, perhaps there were not that many industrial secrets to be you know, picked from you know Central Europe. Maybe that was one of the reasons. But the other reason is that people are kind of you know expecting that you know that wire tapping and eavesdropping is. Yeah, it's kind of a common practice, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I, so I would say that um, Central European students should really look into that uh, and and learn a great deal um, about internal European differences, you know, in in reception of of that, that, that particular issue. Uh, I was also interested in your insights on TTIP. Uh, on transatlantic trade and investment partnership, um, and I, you know, I, I noticed that you kind of regret you didn't manage to complete, you know, the, the, the deal before you know Trump administration took over and obviously wrecked the whole thing uh, from the start. Yeah, uh, I, I wonder whether it was at all conceivable in your period of, of time in the office that you know there was three years. Um, and as you know, the Canadians, with a, uh, you know, negotiated the, the deal and went through ratification process for, I think, you know, everything was just completed two or three years ago, maybe two years ago. Uh, so, and obviously, the, can, the, the CETA agreement in its scope is much smaller thing than transatlantic trade and partnership investment uh, agreement. So, uh, was it at all ever realistic to have uh, uh, an agreement like that being completed uh, during one term in office? Uh, and whether you think that it's at all possible to find a bipartisan um, consensus on that? Because obviously it, it needs a bipartisan you know, uh, support in Congress, but also in the administration itself. Uh, now, I wanted to make one or two challenging points, again, from the perspective of uh, Central Europe, uh, and they, they may be on, on, on purpose a little bit harsh, but that's, you know, that's part of my job here. Um, so the, the picture that you, uh, when you look into security relations, which I, I, I thought was fascinating, when you look into security relationship, you paint a picture of a relationship which is indispensable, close, uh, you know, good for the world, good for the United States, good good for Europe, uh, and you kind you, you you the picture that is there during the Obama administration is the the relationship is is difficult, is multi layered, but we have our commitment, and the commitment has not changed. Uh, and I would like to slightly challenge you on this point, saying that, you know, after all, it was under the Obama administration that we have Asia-Pacific pivot. Uh, also, we had, uh, you know, the intervention in Libya, which obviously was only possible because of your support, but still support with the leading from behind, uh, which uh, was a you know, new way of approaching leadership, if you like. And on Ukraine that you have, uh, you know, written extensively about, I think it was probably for the first time that I can, I can recall that we had a situation in which, you know, the Europeans, uh, I'm talking now here about the uh, Minsk format, that the Europeans and the Russians were, uh, 
in one negotiating format with Ukrainians and the United States was missing from it. And my understanding is that it was a conscious decision, you know, that the, the US really um, decided not to, not to be involved at this point in time. So uh, I, I'm being nudged here by Wojtek to stop because I'm going on for too long. So I shall stop at this point in time. And I would just say that, um, don't you think that this kind of a, you know, a kind of decreasing investment in European affairs that was already starting from the Obama administration? Um, and, you know, we have some objective reasons for that, such as, for example, the changing demographics in the United States. I think in 20 years' time, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in 20 years' time, you know, the, the people of European heritage will be minority in the United States. So the, the people are yourself, you know, the cornerstone of, of that, that relationship, well, will, will be uh, in minority. Um, and uh, the other, you know, obviously the security engagement and uh, interests of the United States are all over the world. Uh, and Europe increasingly is of diminishing importance in fact. Thank you. Those are all, those are all great questions. <clears throat> I see Dan Freed has joined. Hello, Dan. Dan and I go back a long way. We were, I was working at the NSC. Dan was there doing a lot more important jobs than I was. I was a young guy. And then we had this second really great chance to cooperate intensively. Dan came to Brussels, God, probably more times than you would care to admit. And um, the, the speech he gave when you left the State Department, I think is one of the most moving and articulate things I've seen uh, in a long time. Those of you who haven't seen it, probably should, should read it. And uh, Dan takes a lot of credit for the sanctions that I talk about in my book at length. Um, and I said it's an undersung achievement because not only do we have 28 member states and the EU institutions, we had Canada and we had, uh, you know, Korea and Japan and Australia, et cetera, et cetera, right? And we had to coordinate all of these different actors. Uh, and um, it was not easy. Um, you know, and, but that ties into one of your questions. Look, on, on sanctions, I think actually we certainly weren't leading from behind. We were leading from the front. And I think there was a lot of spine stiffening that, that we can take credit for. Uh, Dan it can, can chime in here. Uh, if, if it hadn't been for us leading that response and stiffening the spines and often uh, announcing sanctions, tougher sanctions, uh, a bit earlier than our EU counterparts, I think the reaction would have been weaker and longer. Um, remember, we spent, I think, at least six months doing pinprint prick sanctions against individuals uh, on sanctions lists, and then it took us a while to get to the real you know, story, which was sectoral sanctions, particularly in financial services and oil and gas. So there, we were very much leading from the front. But, you know, to go quickly, you know, without taking too much time, you're absolutely right. The breadth and scope of this relationship has brought, has gone up over the last couple of decades, no doubt about it. Uh, it now covers almost everything you can imagine. And I was really struck when I arrived in Brussels at seeing that we were interacting with the EU in ways that I was not fully aware of. You know, we had agencies like the, uh, well, Food and Drug Administration, which is, uh, has several people on the ground there from the Federal Aviation Administration, a lot of other agencies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it covers a wide gamut and it's, um, it, it shows you just how important this relationship is. And 
Uh, I did know a fair amount about the EU when I arrived, but I also quite struck that, you know, despite all the criticisms of the EU of being weak and dysfunctional and so on, um, it, it is a superpower in a non-traditional way. Uh, trade is the obvious one, but not just trade. You mentioned you mentioned uh, regulatory and data privacy, which is hugely uh, significant. And uh, more and more people are understanding this. You know, GDPR, which you mentioned, is an interesting test case. When we were uh, trying to make the text a little bit better, um, a lot of American companies came to me and said, this is terrible. This is EU overreach, uh, too much bureaucracy, too much regulation. Fast forward a couple years later, you have Tim Cook in Brussels saying this is terrific. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg in Brussels saying this is terrific. We should have GDPR. We should have federal privacy legislation. The world should adopt GDPR as the gold standard. And there are many examples, by the way, of this, of the EU actually being on the front foot. Uh, I talk about the digital economy and copyright, for example, as one area where um, a lot of American companies uh, are complainants in Brussels in bringing lawsuits before DG competition policy because they think they can get a better hearing in the EU than in the United States. Um, TTIP, absolutely right. Look, it was overambitious. There's no doubt about it. I was frankly a bit skeptical. We could get to the finishing line within three years. We tried, we failed, uh, but we now have to draw the right lessons. And one of the lessons is we have to be ruthlessly um, realistic about what we can do given the backdrop. The backdrop will be COVID. The backdrop will be financial crisis and populations that are suffering and a skepticism and a fear about why my God, free trade is gonna introduce even more uh, pressure to adapt and compete. And a lot of people won't want it. Um, you know, on TTIP, it wasn't just Germany, it was Austria, it was Luxembourg, and many other countries uh, expressing fears, oddly, not just about the agreement, but about free trade. So briefly, I do think there's stuff we can do quickly. I would say an example would be eliminate tariffs on industrial goods trade right now. We came close under TTIP. It's being discussed under the Trump administration, hasn't been done. It would stimulate trade, uh, I think it's relatively, uh, relatively uncontroversial. Uh, U.S. farmers and ranchers will not be happy because they wanted a tariff discussion wrapped into a much bigger discussion. I don't think we should go down that route because we're not going to get anything done. Um, but I think there's also bipartisan consensus in the United States, and I think it would also pass the European Parliament, and I think member states would agree to it. Finally, you know, Asia, Asia pivot, you know, um, I would be the first to admit to you that it was tough as an ambassador to explain to some of my dear colleagues in Washington, what on earth is the European Union? How on earth does this thing work? Right. And I could see that some people's eyes started glazing over when I tried to explain to them the you know intricacies of EU decision making. <laughs> and Dan, you probably remember, some people really didn't have patience for this. And by the way, it's the same in Europe. You know, the EU has a hard time describing to most people how it works. Having said that, though, I don't accept the argument that we took our eye off the ball, we were just interested in Asia. There are lots of examples in the book about how 
uh, all the way, I described all the way through the administration, we identified the EU as uh, a key as a key partner. Um, and, uh, you know, even in the case of Libya, well, I'm not an expert on that, but I think it was appropriate indeed that Europe should, you know, take the lead with U.S. support. Um, are there some instances where Europe should stand up in, in its own neighborhood? Uh, I would say the Balkans is another one, right, where uh, it's absolutely appropriate for, for Europe to do that with U.S. support. Um, but I accept your I, I look. I accept your point that uh, look, there, there were skeptics in the administration, um, as there were in prior administrations about the EU. Thank you for listening to the Visegrad Insight podcast on Central Europe from Central Europe. Since you are here, we have a little favor to ask. Send us your ideas about the themes, topics or guests that should be featured in the next episodes of this podcast. We'll be very gladly reading them if you send an email to contact at visegradinsight.eu. You may reach us also through Twitter or Facebook channels. And last but not least, don't forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter at visegradinsight.eu. Thank you.